RadioInfluence.com. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I am your host, Vincent Hill. And I first want to apologize if you hear any moans and groans during this podcast. My lower back is killing me. It's to the point where it's hard to stand up. It's definitely hard to walk. It's hard to bend over. It's hard to lay down. It's hard to do anything. And from time to time, my back gets in this condition. And I think it comes from years of wearing a gun belt uh, on my hip with all of that weight. Prior to that, it was years of doing road marches with a 20 to 50 pound rucksack in the small of my back. So every once in a while, my lower back tends to freeze up on me and it hurts like hell. Uh, but you know, I just deal with it. I usually just put some icy hot on it and, you know, keep it moving. I don't, I'm, I've never been the person to turn to pain medication. Call me stubborn, call me whatever. Uh, I just don't take that. I, Anybody that knows me will tell you I don't even take aspirin. So I definitely don't want to take the hard stuff that can tend to be addictive. So, again, if you hear some moans, if you hear some groans, or if I sound like I'm in pain, trust me, it's because I'm in a lot of pain right now. But I definitely wouldn't have missed coming to you guys tonight uh, to talk here on Beyond the Badge. So this this past... uh, Friday. Well, before I get into that today, I actually had a a casting call with uh, Peacock, who is actually owned by NBC. And there's a casting call. It's a project coming up. I don't know the name of the show just yet, but it's about the the murder of, you know, Andrew. I'm sorry, the murder of Versace by Andrew Kinnanen. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the 20 year anniversary is either here or has just passed. So, of course, it's becoming a big thing again. That's usually how it works in 10-year spurts. Uh, So I got a casting call, had a casting call. Um, You know, I'm waiting to hear back if they like me. They said they're going to fly me up to New York. We're going to shoot this incredible show. So if I get picked, A, that would be great because it will actually be on the Oxygen Network. Um, You know, that's a different demographic than what most people have seen me on. I've usually done the Fox News or the ID Discoveries or occasionally the HLNs, of course, right here on RadioInfluence.com. But, you know, if I get picked, it'd be great. Uh, I'll be on Oxygen. Again, I don't know the name of the show, but uh, I'm sure it will be great because it's got all the makings of a great show you have. Uh, a lot of murders. You have, you know, Versace and the other victims that Andrew Cunanan murdered. I believe there were four others. Then you have Andrew Cunanan himself. Uh, so, you know, it's a big project. Can't wait to see what happens with that. You know, I'm, I'm prayerful. Don't want to hold my breath, but at the same time, I'm prayerful that it will happen. Now, this past Friday, I traveled up to Charlotte, North Carolina uh, to film a show called what really happened. And I got a call out of the blue uh, about coming on and being on the show because they had 
uh, heard about me from a previous show I had taped for TV one. And, you know, I got the script and I started looking at it and it was a story that it was a once in a lifetime opportunity for me because, you know, I'm always on these different outlets, these different news uh, outlets talking about police cases and, you know, current police cases. But when I read the script and I, I looked at the case, it was something that was near and dear to me simply because when I read it, I put myself in that situation and I said how easily it could have been me. So it was about the 1996 uh, killing of police officer Sergeant Gregory Martin. And it happened in 96, but it wasn't actually solved until about 2012. And it's a very interesting story and a very sad story, to say the least. So what happened, uh, again, nothing is routine in policing. Nothing is routine in traffic stops. Let me tell you the gist of it, and then I'll work my way back. Sergeant Greg Martin initiates a traffic stop in Jonesville, North Carolina, on Interstate 77, uh, just off one of the exits. And as he's searching the vehicle that was occupied by two male whites, as he's searching the vehicle while they're standing behind the vehicle, Sergeant Gregory Martin was shot six times in the head by a nine millimeter. And of course, the suspects uh, fled off. And of course, there was no uh, dash cam or anything like that. And I don't think it really would have mattered. And I'll tell you why here in a second. So again, the uh, case went unsolved until about 2012. There were actually three people charged in Sergeant Martin's murder. And those people were uh, an individual by the name of Scott Sika, Brian Whitaker, and the other guy's name was Mark Oldroyd. I think I'm saying that right. It's old and then R-O-Y-D, Oldroyd. So these three had gone on this this uh, crime spree, this robbery spree. Sika used to work at this Home Depot in the state of Florida. So the three decide, well, let's go out and rob this Home Depot. So they robbed this Home Depot for about $35,000 cash that they get out of the, the uh, safe. So then, of course, they start going on this shopping spree, and they travel up and down the Florida panhandle into Louisiana, eventually into Minnesota. I don't know how you go from Florida, Louisiana to Minnesota, uh, but they go to Minnesota. At some point, they decide, hey, we need to move back south, and money's getting low, so... They decide, well, we got to do another robbery. So, of course, they don't want to use a vehicle with a sign attached to them because, of course, the plates will run back to one of those guys. So what they do is one of the oldest tricks in the book uh, when it comes to stealing cars, they did what's known as a key swap. And if you don't know what that means, essentially, you go to a dealership and you get the dealer to bring you the keys bring you the keys to the car so you can start it, pretend like you're interested, and then you hand the key back. Well, how's that a key swap? Well, let me add to it. So you drive to the dealership, 
with your car, but the dealership has to have a car just like yours. So for instance, I drive a 2010 Hyundai Genesis. So let's say I went to a dealership and there's a 2011 Hyundai Genesis or 2010 that has less miles, whatever, whatever. I tell the dealer, oh, let me, let me listen to it. So I have my spare key to my 2010 Hyundai Genesis, get their key to the 2011 or the one with less miles, start it up. Oh, well, I may be back to look at it. So then I get the dealership my spare key and wait until the dealership is closed, come back with the key to the car I want to steal, get in it, boom, and I'm gone. So they do this key swap in West Virginia, and they're, again, driving up and down the interstate. They somehow end up in North Carolina. So their plan was to rob this Huddle House. It's a restaurant. It's like a Waffle House or, you know, one of those, you know, just small chain restaurant type uh, things. So their plan was to rob this, and Sergeant Gregory Martin, being the cop that he is, and looking at instincts, he sees these guys and he's like, well, these guys are up to no good. So they see him, he sees them. And people usually up to no good have the oh shit expression on their face. So they get in the car or the truck that they had just stolen uh, and they proceed to drive off. So on this truck, it was a stolen tag. And back in 96, you know, some things may have been entered into NCIC. Sometimes you may have had to call a dispatcher in and they may have had to call the other state and the other county and all of this stuff before you can get these records back. So I don't think really at the initial time of the stop, I don't think Sergeant Martin knew the truck was stolen. So as he's talking to these two individuals who were in the truck, it was actually Sika and Whitaker because Elroyd and the truck that was not stolen was parked a few exits away. They were going to do the robbery, ditch the truck and the stolen truck and, you know, hightail it out of town. So Sika and Whitaker are in the truck. Sergeant Martin is talking to them like, hey, let me see your driver's license, blah, blah, blah. Well, we don't have any ID. Well, clue number one, when you're dealing with police, people that don't say they don't have any ID are up to no good. So, well, let me see the vehicle registration. Uh, well, you know, we don't have this. We have, you know, a few papers from the dealership. Now, granted, the truck was stolen. Uh, so, of course, cop senses again, Sergeant Martin saying, hmm, something's not right. So Sergeant Martin tells them to exit the vehicle and stand behind the truck. He searches the driver's side of the truck then he makes his way to the passenger side of the truck. Now, on the floorboard of the passenger side was this duffel bag. And inside that duffel bag, and Sergeant Martin didn't know this at the time, were some masks and some other items that the the uh, individuals, Whitaker, Sika, and Elroyd, had used for some previous robberies. Now, let me take a step back. So... Whitaker was armed with the 357. He stashes it in between the seats of the stolen truck. Sika was armed with the 9mm that he stuffs down his pants, covers it with his shirt. So as Sergeant Martin goes to pick up this bag, 
which these individuals believed would have led to them going to jail or to prison for these robberies, even though at the time, again, Sergeant Martin didn't know anything about it. Scott Sika takes out the 9mm and shoots Sergeant Martin six times, and he shoots him six times in the head. So, of course, there is no chance of survival for Sergeant Martin. So, of course, they hightail it out of there, and they're nowhere to be found for years. And police had a little bit of a clue in the form of the original key. Remember, there was the stolen vehicle from the car lot and the key that was left behind. And back between 94 and 96, keys had a code. Unfortunately, Chrysler told the investigators that, yeah, that key could have fit up to 3,000 trucks. So that's a pretty big list to weed through. Me personally, I would have pressed them for more information. So this goes on and on for years with no leads. So they tried... You know, to see if it was someone that maybe Sergeant Martin had arrested before who had a criminal record. No hits on that. They got fingerprints back from the truck that was abandoned because they ditched that truck, stole another van. That was found. Nothing came back on the fingerprints. So, years later, I think in 2012, investigators decided to go back to Chrysler and say, hey, listen. 3,300 vehicles is way too much. You guys need to narrow this down. So they come back with the list and they say it comes down to 80 green Dodge pickup trucks. And they remember the salesman from the dealership where the truck was stolen, stolen saying, yes, the individuals that came in here did the key swap, drove up in a green Dodge pickup truck with Florida tags. So that pool of 3,300 got narrowed down to 80. Then it got narrowed down even more and even more. They tracked the vehicle that had been shipped to, because you're talking 96 and 2012. Most people aren't going to own the same vehicle unless it's a classic, yada, yada, yada. So as they start backtracing these vehicle registrations, they track one down that had been shipped to the state of Colorado, just outside Denver in Aurora. The owner of that vehicle had passed in 1995, and his son, Brian Eugene Whitaker, ended up registering that vehicle in the state of Florida. Now, keep in mind, this whole time, uh, Whitaker and Sika and Elroy were on the run previously for the Home Depot robbery. They were on the run for about two years. So... After investigators get this tip about this truck registered in Florida, they come across this Home Depot robbery and it lists all of these suspects. And it also said that Sika, although he didn't use the gun in the robbery, was armed with a 9mm. So figuring that Sika is likely, maybe, possibly the shooter of Greg Martin, because these guys are pretty violent, right? They're going around, they're robbing people. They're stealing cars. Hmm. Maybe, just maybe, that could be that. But before they approach Whitaker, just on a random hunch, investigators do a Google search of uh, Whitaker's property. And in that Google image, 
there is a green Dodge pickup truck sitting in the backyard. Clear as day, right? Now, this is 2012. So from 96 to 2012, Whitaker still had this green Dodge pickup truck. So they go to Whitaker's house. And as soon as they knocked on the door, Whitaker says, well, I knew this day would eventually come. So, I mean, that told investigators everything they needed to know, right? So investigators interview Whitaker. He tells them everything that happened that night. He points the finger at Sika. Sika is arrested. The three of them are actually charged and convicted. Sika was convicted to a life sentence. And unfortunately, he took the coward's way out and he hung himself in prison. But as I'm sitting here and I'm doing this show called What Really Happened? um, Again, I could picture myself being Sergeant Gregory Martin because one of the things I told the producer after we had gone through all the questions on the script, but I knew we were still recording. I said, listen, the sad part about this entire thing was at that exact moment, Greg Martin had no idea what he had. And at that exact moment, Sika knew that this officer didn't have any backup. And in Sika's mind, he's thinking, I'm going to prison. I can't go to prison. I have to stop this guy. I have to stop this officer from finding all of this stuff because we're going to prison. And I told that producer, man, that could easily have been me because I started thinking back of how many times late at night, one, two in the morning, out in East Nashville, I've had people pulled out of the car. Now, granted, Greg had backup coming. Unfortunately, he got there six minutes after Greg was dead. And I've been in the same situation where I've had backup coming, but the cop in me and that instinct in me sometimes overtook rational thinking. And I was like, okay, I got to find this now. I got to get these guys out of the car now because there's something in this car they don't want me to see. And I think every cop that's ever been in patrol, whether they admit it or not, has been there. So it made me look back and think, oh my God, that so easily could have been me. And that's why that story hit so close to home for me. And in, back in 96, I mean, trying to think where I even was in 96. Let's see. I was at Fort Drum, New York, so I may have been in New York or I may have been deployed somewhere. Uh, you know, I don't know. But for Sergeant Martin, you know, in 96, he was left on the side of Interstate 77 for no one to find him. Because if you think about that, Sika could have cared less if anyone would have found Sergeant Gregory Martin. Sika's only intention was not to go to prison. He could have cared less that Sergeant Martin had a family when he shot him five times in the head. Six times in the head, sorry. Because the only thing he cared about was not going to prison. So, the story in itself, as tragic as it is, it's a testament to how amazing the work of those investigators, not only in the city of Jonesville, but Anyone that helped out on that, and it was the FBI, they got involved, you know, so 
It was a joint effort between the FBI and Jonesville Police Department to never give up on the murder of one of their own because they knew that that person likely was still out there. They did not give up on catching the person that killed one of their own. So not only did investigators get answers for themselves, they got answers for Sergeant Gregory Martin's family. He was married. He had a stepson. He had a daughter. Uh, and he had a six-month-old son at the time that he was killed. Now, let me do the math. 96 to 2018. My daughter was born in 95. She's 22. So Gregory Martin's son is 21, about to be 22 years old. And he never knew his dad simply because Scott Sika didn't want to go back to jail. And this is why it really upsets me when people think they understand policing and they think that policing is this no-brainer job and it's just all about writing tickets and all of this other stuff. When I tell you that you don't know what's going to happen to you from one minute to the next, when I tell you you don't know who's in that vehicle, I don't care how nice the vehicle looks. I don't care how nice the people in the vehicle look because uh, let's let's fast forward this to 2018, shall we? Now, the individuals inside that car were white. Greg Martin was white. So let's take race back out of the equation. I don't care what the people in the vehicle look like. You don't know who you're dealing with when you walk up to that vehicle. And Gregory Martin, Sergeant Gregory Martin, Jonesville, North Carolina police, had no idea who he was dealing with on October 5th, 1996. He had no idea that when he turned his back, he was going to be shot six times in the head. He had no idea of that. Just like I never had any idea if my family would ever get that call. Just like any officer in this country has no idea if their family would get that call. And I, I think back to Baltimore and I think back to November and I think to Detective Sean Souter and his murder is still unsolved. And I've reached out to his wife. Hopefully I can have her on this show to tell her side of the story and how she's feeling about that. But these are things that people don't realize happen every day in policing because they think it's what they see on TV. And it thinks they think that police don't care and they think that police are tough line. No, it doesn't work that way. Police in this country are assaulted, attacked, killed almost daily. But yet it's never an issue for anybody unless it's the other way around and the police are doing their job. So the show, again, it's called What Really Happened. Um, it actually, believe it or not, airs in Germany. This this production company who's based here in uh, Maryland actually produces all of their shows for Germany. And I know what you're thinking, Germany. Well, why Germany? Well, there's a large U.S. population in Germany. Keep in mind, I was born in Germany uh, to a U.S. soldier. So there's a large population in Germany. Uh, but of course, I'm sure when the show airs, I will either get a link or a DVD copy. I'll let you know when and where it airs so you can go and watch it. Again, it's Gregory Martin, uh, Sergeant Gregory Martin, Jonesville Police Department. It's a very 
very interesting case. It's a very, very sad and tragic case. But but at the end of the day, his family at least did get justice for his murder. At least they got answers to what happened to their loved one. Now, with that said, I think it's only fitting that tonight's 10-7 segment be dedicated to Sergeant Gregory Keith Martin. And I had to go way back on the Officer Down Memorial page, odmp.org, to find this bio. And it's a pretty long read, uh, but bear with me because I believe it's truly worth it. Sergeant Gregory Martin was shot and killed during a traffic stop on I-77 near Exit 82 at 2.42 a.m. Sergeant Martin was working a solo midnight shift as another officer had the day off. He was on his way to the Elkin Police Department when he spotted a suspicious man standing behind a strip mall on Highway 67. Investigators believe Sergeant Martin then followed this person to his vehicle and followed the vehicle onto the interstate. Just before making the stop, he notified dispatchers that he would be out with the subject. Upon hearing the dispatch, a nearby North Carolina state trooper offered to assist Sergeant Martin, who responded, I'm going to need some assistance. When the state trooper reached Sergeant Martin's location, he found him lying on the side of the road. He had been shot in the head multiple times at close range. The subject had fled the scene after stealing a van from a nearby location. The case remained unsolved until October 3, 2012, when a suspect was arrested in Lee County, Florida, and charged with Sergeant Martin's murder. Two additional suspects were arrested in January of 2013 and charged with first-degree murder. All three subjects were also charged with attempted armed robbery, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, and possession of stolen goods. In March of 2014, the 38-year-old shooter who was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. On June 4, 2014, his two accomplices were convicted of second-degree murder, attempted armed robbery, and conspiracy. One was sentenced to 14 to 17 years in prison, and the other was sentenced to 10 to 12 years in prison. The subject, who was sentenced to life, died in prison on April 19, 2016, Sergeant Martin had served with the Jonesville Police Department for three years. He is survived by his wife and three children. So he was killed October 5th, 1996. How fitting that almost 16 years to the date on October 3rd, 2012, his killer was arrested and charged in his murder. It's a beautiful thing. The North Carolina Department of Transportation dedicated a bridge near Jonesville on Interstate 77 as the Gregory Martin Memorial Bridge in memory and honor of Sergeant Gregory Martin. Now, I've traveled up and down Interstate 77 countless times, and I've been over that bridge, but I never really thought about who Gregory Martin was. And I'm so thankful that I was presented with this case for the show What Really Happened so I could take the time to learn who Sergeant Gregory Martin was and the ultimate sacrifice he paid in protection of the citizens of Jonesville, North Carolina. To Sergeant Gregory Martin, thank you so for your, sir, for your service. Godspeed to you, my prayers to your family. Thank you so much for listening to me here tonight. 
on Beyond the Badge. And hopefully you didn't hear too many grunts because my back still hurts. I will see you right here next week, RadioInfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter, at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is the Landry Football with Chris Landry. Quick fix on Radio Influence. We've had a, uh, a good um, interaction with some fans talking about paying student athletes. And we've had a really good uh, emailer that has put forth some well thought ideas and questions um, in kind of re- in relation to Tuesday's podcast um, and uh, uh, how we look at the whole process of paying athletes and the money that's available to it. And he brings up some, some good points that I want to address uh, for him and for the other listeners out there. And he talks a little bit about the importance of, of players and the games wouldn't happen without the players. And it's absolutely true. Uh, of course, they wouldn't happen without the universities that they represent as well. Um, and uh, certainly, I do believe that there needs to be an increase in the stipend. But I think that there's some other things that I neglected to bring up and didn't do a very good job in the last podcast of going into as much detail as I have in the past. So I want to take the time to kind of go over it again and talk about the things that I think could be improved as far as making the student athletes time on campus uh, more comfortable. Uh, I believe that they provide a service and they work for the university. And in addition to their scholarship, I think what they do brings enough attention to the university and enough positive vibe and marketing to the university that it should provide not only a scholarship, which is worth an awful lot, but it should also provide them more money to be able to live comfortably. Uh, I don't believe they should be paid and should be paid money uh, for their services, but I think the stipend should be equal. Um, And I also believe, and I've said this before in the past, it was about three or four years ago when I spent some time going over this. And I do believe that uh, for players, the particularly ones that have great marketing abilities uh, with their skills, I do believe that taking a fund that is generated from likeness of players should be put in the fund and split three ways. One, to the school. Without the school, you don't have anything that you're representing. Two, I think it should go into a fund to help student athletes who are struggling with medical issues as a result of being involved with student activity playing. We, we talk about it a lot at the NFL level, but we don't talk about it enough at the college level. So I think money should be put into a fund there. And I think there is a fund that should be put for the player upon their graduation at the school. And I think that it, it could be worked to where the longer you stay at the school, the more money you receive. I think coming in for the one-and-done basketball guys or the redshirt sophomores in uh, college football that leave early, you get less money because you didn't stay there longer. 
I think that's only fair. You stay there full four years, you get more money, money that's put in and invested for you for your future. I think those things are on top of what I mentioned the other day in terms of making sure that all of their their clothing and housing needs are very well taken care of, um, in addition, obviously, to the best nutrition. If we're going to develop these players uh, as coaches, we certainly need to do the best in terms of the nutrition in areas. Chris Landry brings you Landry Football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and, of course, RadioInfluence.com. 